Hello and welcome back to Absurdity. And today you may have noticed that Henry Johnson is not with us. Normally he would be, but the week that we're recording this, which our guests and I have been trying to schedule this for probably three or four months now. So the week that we were finally able to do this, unfortunately, Henry is out of town uh, on a on a trip. He's actually preaching somewhere else. And so uh, he's out of town today, but we didn't want to put off this interview. And, and I wanted to make sure that that you guys got some quality content today. So I am joined by Seth Pierce, who has released a book called Seeking and Understanding, How to Have Difficult Conversations Without Destroying Your Relationships. He is a, uh, he's pastored for 16 years, uh, both through the Midwest and the Pacific Northwest. He has a PhD in communication, and he's a, a professor of communication and preaching at Union College in Lincoln, Nebraska. So he's definitely definitely got the chops to write a book like this and to uh, and to have this conversation and honestly absurdity was started uh, specifically so that we could learn to have better conversations and maybe by listening to this and listening to 160 some odd episodes we've released up to now that maybe you've learned from me what not to do and maybe you've learned from me what to do and so that's the goal is that we all learn and grow together so Seth welcome to the show man how are you doing Good. And thank you so much. Glad to, glad to be here after all the, you know, trying to get together for the last few months, like you said. Yeah, no, I mean, the last one, we were so close. I was five minutes late. You were here and then you had to run. And I think you rubbed off on bad luck on me. You had to run because someone locked their keys in their car. And I've done that yeah. twice since that message. Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> new pandemic. So we're going to lock themselves out of their car now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it was, what's sad to me is it never happened to me. I've, I think I've done it one time my entire life and suddenly it's happened two or three times in the last like six months and I'm upset. Um, I'm a little, I'm a little, little bummed about it. So you released this book and, and, and I like starting here. Uh, we're, we're talking about how to have better conversations and some of the principles that you've outlined in your book. And yes, I did buy a copy. So no one, this isn't like a sponsored thing. This isn't like you know, he didn't send me a free one and I'm going to give a review or anything like that. This, I bought it myself. I read it and I am excited to, uh, to dive into this a bit, but I do want to start here. What has been an unexpected outcome, uh, since writing this book? So I'm going to answer this in kind of a strange way and it's not throwing shade at any of my friends, but one of the things that has shocked me is having super close friends buy it, love it and post reviews on Amazon and talk to me about it. And that's not that I don't have supportive friends or family, but sometimes when you're really close to somebody, it, there's such a familiarity, you're not maybe in a hurry, like, well, I talked to them, I kind of know what they have to say. Um, but when the book came out, I was having close friends of mine text me and email me and message me on social media saying, we really like this, this is helpful, I'm buying it for my church, mm-hmm. I'm buying it for my leaders. Uh, and I guess I didn't quite me- expect um, that swift of support and... Um, uh, and even if you know people buy the book and, and enjoy it, just the taking the initiative and being really intentional, of letting me know uh, that the contents were valuable, um, which I really, really appreciated. Uh, yeah, it was. Yeah, it, and that's been super awesome to see that happen. That's really cool because I know. So I work a lot in content creation, obviously, and I think one of the biggest things that people worry about is how their what their friends will think or mm-hmm. how their friends will judge them, and that actually that even stopped me from doing certain things that now I finally embrace doing on my own social media of really kind of going into a, I, I now do podcast coaching and mentoring and creating content around that has been a new thing that I've done this year. But for the longest time, I didn't want to do that. I hated self-promotion because I felt uncomfortable. I felt like it was alienating people or what would my friends think of me? But the bottom line is like, if this is what I want to do and what I'm passionate about, I'm going to do it. And so to see someone whose friends have responded positively when they've gone in the direction of producing content, which is a risk in and of itself. Yeah. Uh, that's really, really cool to see that. So I do want to, um, I do want to ask this question just as a means of, of helping to understand this. I think there, for some people, I think one question they ask when they see a book is, and I know I've asked this before, maybe it's just me. I don't know. So maybe I'm asking this for me. But they just think, okay, so this is a really good topic. And yes, you do have the academic credentials, but why Why did you specifically write this book? Why did you feel like this was you and not, I'm going to go to someone and convince them to write it? Or, you know, I this is just, you know, what made you feel that this was what you needed to do? Yeah. So this book was born out of my context as a pastor of a, a larger multi-staff church in the Pacific Northwest at a time where a whole bunch of uh, social is- issues were erupting. Um, 
you know, we have the Black Lives Matter you know movement. We have the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, Me too. Um, the election seasons that we've been going through. Uh, you know, within uh, conservative Christianity, the debates about the LGBTQ, you know, community, mm-hmm. and all all these and more uh, showing up. And what I was finding as a pastor is, you know, we'd come to church and we'd have uh, a nice service. We'd have potluck, everyone would eat together and things were fine. And then I'd go look at my social media, typically Facebook, and watch these same people who just sat together and prayed together and sang together uh, just skewering each other and not just my church, but, you know, churches I'd passed before my colleagues' churches, family members of mine. And and of course I've gotten roped into it. I'm just as guilty, you know, getting pulled into certain debates and, and reacting in ways where at the end of the day, you're like, this isn't healthy. We we have to be able to do better than this. Uh, and then trying to figure out how do I, how do we do this? Because everyone is coming at it from uh, so many different places, so many different experiences. Uh, not everybody has the same, uh, language base. Um, they don't know the terminology. Uh, some do, some don't. And so it really became uh, a necessity for me as a pastor saying, we've got this uh, elephant in the room, all this tension that's here. We all know it's there. We can all feel it. And yet you know, no one's talking about it. So how, how as a pastor you know, and a communicator can, can I approach this uh, to make our, our church community healthier, to make these relationships healthier, and even challenging myself, how can I um, yeah, who's, you know, in the middle of my PhD on, on the academic side of things. How do I apply this stuff? How do I, how do I make this relevant mm-hmm. and real? Um, so that's, that's sort of the context, uh, that yeah. moved me to write the book. No, I, I, I can resonate with you. I only have a, just a couple of years of pastoral experience before I, I shifted into, into, you know, college ministry work and I see it in college students too, but Man, those two years that I was pastoring in a in a small rural uh, town outside of South Carolina, I saw it so much. Uh, I saw it in members. I saw it outside of of them, you know, outside of my churches as well. I see it online in certain circles, and I see it from all sides of the aisle. This isn't a, you know, th- this isn't a uh, one size or one specific group that has a problem. It's all of us yeah. that I think are have been approaching conversations in a in a in a really in a dangerous way. And I think social media plays a significant part in that. I, I think social media taught us to do what we used to do in private in public. And what I mean by that is normally I think when, when we had news cycles the way we used to have them and not just 24 hour news that you can access whenever, wherever, as well as access to a platform to share your thoughts, you used to have something, you used to hear about something, you used to process it, maybe process it among friends. And then you would probably publish a response on like a MySpace blog back then or Friendster or Facebook back in the day, but you you didn't react immediately. But now all of the processing is actually done publicly. Yes. And I think that causes, there's no room to to really actually have nuance when you're processing. Right. There's a whole branch of communication studies called media ecology. And a lot of times people take an instrumentalist view um, of technology saying it looks just a tool uh, you can use it for good or bad, or they take a look at specific um, content on like whether it's Netflix or whether it's Hulu or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Uh, media ecologists take a look at the whole environment. They would ask the question, okay, what is you know the era of radio um, back when it was like the you know medium? What it, what is it doing to us? What's it doing to human consciousness? How is it telling us to think? And so you know, speeding up to the present day, where we're in this sort of digital hyperlink um, mixed reality. Uh, environment. Um, one of the questions that comes up is, what is the tendency of this technology? How is it shaping uh, our communication, media ecology, the environment that we're in? And I think you you nailed it in that it, it, it privileges speed and reaction uh, over thoughtful reflection. And so, and, and people monetize it. I mean, our, our rage mm-hmm. and our um, vitriol is bankable. Um, uh, with the, you know, there's clip, you know, like, like clickbait, you know, we, we know how to provoke people and we can spark these massive fights in, in a thread. And that's, that's hits, that's content. That's, you know, that, you know, whoever's running the platform, um, is, is gaining from that. And, and it's not that I, and I'm certainly, I'm on social media and I hope people who listen to this will follow me, but it's, I think there has to be a little bit of caution, you know, with the content that we create online and how we respond to that content. Um, but because we're in this environment, we're in this uh, media ecology, it's our normal. Uh, it's just how we operate. And so part of this book um, and other books, you know, like it is trying to call people to step out a little bit as far as possible 
to ask the questions, you know, when I, when I get into this space, um, what is it doing to me? What's it doing to my emotions? What's it doing to my, my mind and how is it shifting the way I communicate and relate to people? Yeah, I, I think that's huge. And I did not know that media ecology, I had figured it was like a field of study. I just didn't know. I didn't have a name for it or any frame of reference, but, uh, that is interesting. So thank you for sharing that. I, I learned something here too. The, the, the interesting thing with this that I'm that I'm now curious to see how it plays out is in the wake of the pandemic, we're seeing a lot of people quit their jobs because they're tired of being exploited as workers, right? And there's a lot of people that are saying, I'd rather unemployment benefits played into this a lot when people realized it wasn't worth working now the same dead end and terrible job where customers treat me terribly, my boss treats me terribly, not worth it for a wage that's less than livable. Mm-hmm. And so you're seeing a lot of people tired of being exploited as workers, but are still existing and interacting on social media in a way that is exploited by those that own those platforms. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm interested to see if any of this kind of carries as a thread of consistency from the professional life to the personal life and uh, semi-public life as far as social media is concerned. I'm interested to see if there will be any sort of correlation there. Uh, or causation there, but yeah, just food for thought. Yeah. So how would you, how would you define a conversation? We usually start there, but I wanted to ask those other questions first this time, but I, I want to start there mainly because I think that there is, there's a problem when we, you and I may talk about a term, but if we haven't set a common understanding of what that term is, we may be obviously missing the boat or someone listening may have a different understanding of it. So I like to set kind of a, a ground rule for or ground definition so that we're all operating on the same space and on the same wavelength. So yeah, wh- how would you define a conversation and when is it a conversation instead of a debate or argument? Really good question. And one thing that ends up happening to how we use the term conversation can sometimes be ominous. You know, we need to have a conversation, um, which is usually means there's not going to be much of a conversation. It's going to be one-sided. Uh, a really simple definition, uh, and then I'll unpack a little bit is a conversation has the goal of learning, uh, not winning. So mm. when I enter into a conversation, it's really just about exploring a topic. So if, when I sit down um, with a colleague uh, in my field or another pastor or uh, somebody who we're going to talk about two sides of whatever issue it is, uh, when we know it's a conversation, we're really here just, just to learn from each other. I'm not going in to score points or to make myself look good. I, I'm really genuinely wanting to learn. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a place where I can ask questions. You know, I'm not going to be uh, sincere, sincere questions, not not rhetorical questions or gotcha questions. And someone's going to know that okay, they're asking this question from a place of, of ignorance and genuine interest. I'm wanting to know, and I'm not going to get on them for maybe asking you know, unknowingly, you know, a tone deaf question. Uh, but a debate and an argument, you're you're really going in to to prove a point, uh, to win, to emerge uh, with a winner and a loser. Uh, and, and that's that's how I would sort of put the difference there. It's it's learning, not winning. Hmm, that's a good one. Uh, learning, not winning. I like that. I actually, so the way that I frame it is a little bit differently. I, I like to frame it as a conversation happens when you care more about the other person than you do the point you're trying to make. Yeah. Um, and and I think that there is a, and basically what that, it, it loosely translates to something translates to something similar in that, you know, if you care more about the point you make than you care more about winning and being right, yeah. then you do the person you're conversing with and they're either their personal growth or your personal growth. And so I think there's, there's some, some synergy there. So I'm glad I'm not off on the, on, on some wild off beaten path. No. And there's that old, uh, aphorism, you know, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. It's the same kind of principle at work. You know, we're, I'm, I'm wanting to really know and understand you uh, I want to hold you in high regard. I want to. I want to care about what's important to you. Um, and so, when we enter into a conversation, there's this mutual regard and respect. It's not going in to fight an opponent. Mm. So, how do you navigate the conversations where both parties actually do operate or are operating from different knowledge bases? So, framing this in terms of how I develop my book, and this is kind of where I, I was as a pastor, and many times, whether it's the classroom that I'm in now or when I'm guest speaking and you get into conversations after after presentations, I, I think the place you have to start is walking it back to where there is agreement. So, whatever issue it is, you know, you, you've got to kind of walk it back. You, often, we jump right into a debate. Again, people are at different levels, different uh, using different terms and understandings, they have different experiences. And so, to jump right into it, 
usually just creates more chaos. And so if you can walk it back a bit and say, let's, let's, you know, for example, let's take uh, the issue of racism before jumping into it uh, from the pulpit. You know, I walked it back to just the issue of power in general, you know, what is power? Uh, how is power abused, you know, and, and slowly, you know, building it to where people could say, oh, now I understand, you know, how racism is connected to power and systems and different things like that. But we had to walk all the, all the way back to just a basic definition. What is power? Power exists. What is power? How do we use power? Mm-hmm. Does power get abused? Are there systems of power? You know, and so just once we could kind of get there, some of those contentious attitudes, and certainly not all, um, you can't win everybody, you know, but but a lot of them melted away and people were really listening and, and processing some of this stuff and saying, okay, well, I can see how the debate I was engaged with, I was talking past the other person. I think if we walk it back and uh, figure or we agree, we can proceed from there. And then when you do reach a disagreement, uh, you can pause and say, let's let's take time to listen now. Uh, we're not, we're, we're, we're kind of getting out of the, the debate mode into, let, let's ask some questions of each other, other books or videos or things that we want to recommend to each other to learn. And then maybe we can come back uh, and make sure that we understand mm-hmm. the other person before we disagree with them. No, I, Love it. I absolutely do love it. And I love the idea of, of, of taking a second to say, Hey, wait a minute. I think we might be, we might be operating in different spaces here. Let's try and figure out some harmony first or some common ground and then move from there. And I think this is actually the trouble with a lot of, with a lot more public speaking gigs and, and why I think a lot of people get in a lot, in a lot more trouble with public speaking is simply because you, if you, are, if you spend more time doing public speaking than you do in personal conversations about your topic yeah. uh, with with people who are not just in your circle, I think you sometimes get a kind of monolithic view of your topic in a monolithic way or a, a you know, just, just yeah, I, I think that still works, a monolithic way of, of communicating your points. And so you lack the nuance and you lack the care and empathy for people who have had different experiences. You know, the, the way that someone talks about, for example, with me, my father died when I was 17 years old of a heart attack. And the way that someone talks to me who knows that fact is different than the way someone who doesn't know that fact talks to me. Yes. And that is something I, I actually very much, well, I won't get it. That one's a little bit unrelated. But the the point being that I, the... Seeking common ground and understanding someone else's experiences really, I think, helps shape a conversation and really help create something better from it and, and allow for better outcomes, I think. Yeah. So. For sure. Um, uh, one of the, the things I mentioned in the book, and when I go in and speak and, and do consulting work, I, I mentioned this is one of the talks that I'll do. Uh, but there is an old communication theory called the meaning of meaning. and We won't deep dive into it here, but. But the idea is that um, the meaning behind words are inherent people, not the words themselves. And so when you throw in terms like feminism or racism or Christianity or Seventh-day Adventism or whatever whatever it is, we all bring these different experiences into the table. And so when I hear that word, I'm already working from a different definition based on my experience with that term. And I think public speakers can forget that. We'll throw words out there assuming that the audience is starting from the same ground, and they're not. Um, very, very different experiences, which... which uh, flavors certain words differently. And what I found many, many times is people, uh, white privilege is a great um, example of a term that can be taken very, very differently. So when you're talking about white privilege, you're looking at um, the privileges that come with having, you know, uh, white skin, you know, and a lot of people when they hear that, oh, you think I'm a racist and a horrible person, like that's not, that's not how we're using that term. And so, um, but again, when you're starting, uh, when one person's starting from a social dynamic that's looking at systemic racism or, or certain norms within a culture that benefit others and not, um, and, and that benefits some and not other people, and somebody else has their term and they think, well, you're calling me, you know, this horrific thing. And like, that's, that's not, you know, that's not what we're doing. But by that time, we're off to the races and everyone's fighting. <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So, Here's an interesting thing that I that I've wondered, and I think it's something that is really, really important, but I don't think enough people give enough time or enough consideration to, which is, and it's one of the most frustrating things I've experienced because I, I like to think that I try to come at conversations from a, from a place of openness quite often. And honestly, being when one of my closest friends left Christianity and became an atheist after we 
staying friends with him through the militant atheist phase of, of his deconversion and then uh, now coming to the other side of that where we both have this common agreement and understanding. Our conversations are so much better now. And that tr- that taught me a lot about understanding where someone else is coming from and has really impacted the way that I have conversations. But one of the things that I really struggle with is if I've read your book and I am, this is just an example, but if I've read your book and now I want to approach my conversations differently, how do I, how do, I do so when someone else hasn't and doesn't have the same view of conversations? How do I have conversations with people who don't see it this way or who don't even know to see it this way? And how do I win them into that format? How do I invite someone into that mindset and, and to transition a conversation into something more meaningful that doesn't destroy the relationship? Yeah, there's a couple things you can do. And I, again, that word winning you know, comes up. And I think when you're in a situation like this, uh, to go from a place I've got to win them to that, it's not going to work because uh, then it's, mm. it's going to become manipulation. I need to get them into this so I can, you know, have the conversation that I want to have. Uh, and, and, and that's kind of the, the, there's a fine line between manipulation and persuasion. Persuasion is, you know, I've got the interest of both parties in mind. And even though I think it's a good, you know, goal to let, let's have a healthy conversation. Um, when someone doesn't want to do that, if they're just dead set against it, I can't force them into it. And looking at the emotional atmosphere of a conversation, if someone clearly, whether it's because of trauma or pain or they're, or they're working through whatever experience that they're currently going through, uh, they, they can't hear it. Uh, I, I can't force them to. And so at that time, and I've been in conversations, they ended up going quite long, but the other person just needed to sort of verbally dump and vomit all this pain and angst about whatever the issue was. And I just listened. I, I just asked some questions and listened. So I could, I, from my side of the conversation, I could, I could choose to be listening and not necessarily agreeing with what they're saying if I disagreed with it, but asking clarifying questions, uh, rephrasing what they said to make sure, you know, my understanding you correctly. And so you feel this way and, um, and just let them kind of work through and, and often, not all the time, but often someone just has to get all that out, you know, before you can start having a healthy conversation. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. most thing, you know, somebody who's gone through a deconversion experience, which can be very traumatic and earth shattering and, and frightening and confusing and all, all sorts of other things. Uh, there are moments, um, whether it's a deconversion of faith or whether it's, you know, whatever kind of transition, you recognize this person is in a place where they're processing a lot and to try to bypass all the things that they have to feel to work through whatever this new reality is for them. I, I have to let them process and I, and I can be there with them to process, but maybe I need to postpone this conversation to another time. Mm, I love, I love the, the willingness to postpone. I, I think that is huge. And I think a lot of us don't take the opportunity to do that and, and don't there, there's a rule in, in sales that when you're, when you're, when you're running a business or you're trying to close a deal and trying to negotiate a sale and a price that the power lies in the person who's willing to say no. Yeah. The power lies in the person who can walk away. And as long as you don't, and as long as you aren't able to say no and walk away, the other person always has power over you. If you can't say no to this deal because you need the money, then they get to determine the price. Yeah. And in the same way, if you can't say no to a conversation when it becomes inappropriate or, or when it can't be, you know, uh, when it can't be transitioned from inappropriate to appropriate, then as long as you're unwilling to say no and postpone it to another time, then you're allowing the other person to determine how you will interact with them. And you're, that's, to me, that says that's, that's a sign of an unhealthy boundary yeah. that, that someone else gets to have that kind of, uh, of control. And you might say the other way around, I guess that, that if I'm saying I won't have a conversation on anything, but my terms, that's different. But I think the, I don't think that's the same thing because mm-hmm. what I'm trying to do is have a conversation where we have, where we both are mutually respecting each other. And if I can do that for you, but you can't do that for me, then it's not a conversation. Right. Right. And that, so. that gets into, um, well, I think from a Christian perspective, I mean, even Jesus tells the disciples, I've got more things to tell you, but you're not, you're not ready. <laughs> you're not ready for this. And, mm. and, you know, when he sends them out and they, they're not welcome, you know, kick the dust off your sandals. There's certainly 
boundaries in every healthy relationship and relationship and conversations. And we've got to be aware enough to say this, this conversation isn't going well, or this interaction is becoming toxic. And I could keep pushing it, but it's just going to get worse. And so maybe I need to step back. And sometimes it means just completely, you know, separating saying, I'm, I'm not, whether I can have this conversation or even interact with this person, depending how ugly it gets. And other times, uh, like I mentioned, I have a specific instance in mind where someone just because of all kinds of pain just kind of launched into this uh, dump of, of decades of pain. And I could push back on things, and if I, but I recognize that this is this is not that time. Um, and I could even say formally, you know, hey, this is not how I want to have a conversation. But but at that point, that wouldn't have gone well. I just needed to basically sit and listen and and empathize, you know, with what they were going through, and and at some level realize it probably has nothing to do with me. This is somebody who is, is hurting, you know, and just needs someone to to be there with them and then listen to their pain without you know running away. As long as, of course, it doesn't turn ugly and. and into personal attacks and things that's a little bit different. Yeah, uh, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. And, and I do want to ask, you know, one of the ways to do that is actually, I would say arguably the only way to really be able to do that is to be able to step back or step out and away for one frame or one phrase I've always heard is, you know, you were too close to the fire to see, to see anything else. And to be able to step back, you were too heated and you were too, too zeroed in and too narrow of focus and you can't see the bigger picture. So when someone is, is in those moments, how do they actually take a step back? What does that look like? And how can we remind ourselves to do that? Or how can we figure out or identify the moments where we're not doing it? It's a good question. Reword it one more time. I'm thinking about it. Yeah. Basically just, you know, if, if we're, if one of the most important things to having a conversation is being able to step back and see the bigger picture or be able to step back and see the bigger picture of the other person's experience and story as well, right? In those moments where you say, I need to listen and empathize. I, this is clearly, you know, you remind yourself that this isn't about you rather than taking their anger and vitriol as, as a personal attack, which is what most of us would do in a comment section is, yeah. is take it as a personal attack, right? So how do you step back or how do you start to identify or how can you identify those moments and, and let that help you guide and respond in a loving and Christian way? Yeah. Uh, one principle, and, and some of this is just in, intuitive when you're in there, you know, you just hopefully mm. uh, as you read, so you just kind of sense, like, I think this is about something else. One thing I've noticed with people, uh, whether a pastoring or, or uh, in the classroom is when someone is investing a massive amount of emotional energy into something that's really not that important. Now, clearly issues of racism and prejudice and sexism, those are big things and they need our energy and, and, and our anger and everything else and our, our passion directed at it. But there's things where, you know, a, a paper might get handed back a, a day later than they thought, or somebody, uh, you know, I'm just making up silly examples off the top of my head, but oh, yeah, you know, you're good. didn't get the right parking spot at, at Walmart. They just explode about everything. You're like, this, this is really not that big of a crisis, but so you kind of gauge this person's emotional, um, response, or if you meet someone for coffee, say just, just a casual meeting, we're just going to catch up, talk about, you know, sports, the weather movies. And they all of a sudden just launch into something, just mm. strong pivot with no warning. And they're just sort of ragey or weepy. You're like, okay, something, something is going on here that has, that, that is, is deeper than, um, maybe the surface level conversation we're having. Mm -hmm. And I, I need to listen. And other times too, you recognize if this gets into, and this kind of gets into, to boundaries and where we draw the line on, on conversations. If a conversation turns to personal attacks on someone's integrity, on their intelligence, it gets personally nasty. Then you can say, you know, I, I'm happy to have a conversation about the topic. Um, but I'm, I'm not going to be called names. I'm not going to be shamed. I'm not going to do any of this kind of stuff. So I'm, I'm available to talk. But if this is how the conversation, I've had to do this in Facebook and, and in person. And this would be mm. very blunt sometimes, and, and not rude, but blunt. And often if someone's really on a roll, you have to put your hand up, give them a visual cue, just kind of raise your hand and say, I'm sorry, but these, how this is going is, is just personally ugly. And we're not even talking about the topic anymore. We're talking about, you know, that you think I'm dumb or you hated the school I went to or, or whatever, like that we're not even on topic anymore. So that's, that's when I've, uh, extracted myself from conversations. That's when I, when I've seen other people get into this on, on some of my social media posts, I've had to step in and moderate and say, Hey, you know, we can have, we, we need to have passionate discussion, but if I see name calling and just 
personal attacks. So then what happens, the conversation moves to, I'm defending myself now. We're not even talking about whatever it was that we're talking about. I have to, I have to now defend, you know, my, my education and my upbringing and this and this, mm-hmm. and this, and we're not even, we're not where we've left the issue. And that isn't to say that our personal stories don't belong in conversations about issues, but there's certainly a way that um, it becomes more about attacking the person than than exploring the issue. And then it, then it never, I've never seen it end well. People just leave ugly and raging mm-hmm. and angry. And um, and, I've, and unfortunately, I've had to, to boot people off and block people, as we all probably have in social media, when someone's just determined um, to take personal shots at others. You're like, I'm sorry, you know, this, this isn't healthy mm-hmm. uh, for anybody. And, and it's a privilege to be able to have these conversations. Um, and if you can't, follow you know basic you know rules of, of kindness you know then we have to suspend the conversation yeah i couldn't agree more i one of the things so absurdity has recently gotten a lot more attention on youtube which for podcasting means that i actually get feedback on episodes now <laughs> yeah. it means that people can leave comments and respond and i am always open to hearing dissent and disagreement and i'm always open to someone uh, you know, jumping in and letting us know what they think and, and what they believe. And I typically don't have an issue with that, but the second that it becomes insulting mm-hmm. and the second it becomes uh, inappropriate or disrespectful, then I go, you know what? Nah, I'm good. This, I don't want that on. I don't want that in this discussion. I don't want that included in this discussion. Right. And it's just a boundary that you have to set. I think, man, if I could even rewind or take a step back further, I, I, I feel like, in order to have good or better conversations, we need to understand what our boundaries are mm-hmm. for sure. And have actually taken time to set them. What do you think yeah. about that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and this gets into uh, a really important point about preparing. How, you know, how do we have these conversations? And all of us have triggers on the variety uh, of uh, subjects and, and experiences. And so when we mm-hmm. know like these, these are the, the topics that'll trigger me. These are the issues, the statements that are gonna, that are going to send me from you know zero to sixty in in one second, and I I have a danger of losing you know control um, over my emotions when I get into these type of topics. So identifying those is huge, and then even writing some responses down. When I hear this statement, when I hear this comment made, you know my knee jerk reaction is going to be to you know go after this person. Instead, what do I want to be able to say? Uh, when I teach intercultural communication, we talk about this all the time. You know, when you get into the moment of conflict um, around, you know, huge issues um, of, of prejudice and 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 all kinds of things, it's very easy to just kind of lose your track of thought and just to, to get into that personal attack mode. And so taking time to say, you know, these are the common statements that I hear that'll trigger me. How do I want to respond to them? And, and writing those out and commit, mm-hmm. committing them to memory. Like I am prepared for when this comes up. I know how I'm going to respond to this. Uh, I also think too, and this may be taking a step back a little bit at the personal attack thing too. Um, when someone offers you a correction, you know, when you misstep and we all do it, you know, we'll have an unfortunate phrase. Uh, you know, we, out of our own ignorance, we'll say something or, or quote old stats or whatever it is. And someone offers you a correction, not nasty and says, Hey, you know, can I just pause? I think, I think what you meant to say was this, or, you know, can I just comment on the analogy you made? not taking it personally, you know, and, and seeing it as a gift, saying this person cares enough about me to, to, you know, call a timeout and say, I, I want to make sure that as we're communicating that you're using the best, you know, material there is. And I've had conversations with other colleagues and friends and students who I've checked in with and saying, you know, I'm going to teach a lesson, for example, on um, Hispanic, you know, uh, Latino culture. And I have my uh, Hispanic Latino uh, students. And I'll say, if, if I, if I say something, that's wrong or the textbook mm. sounds fuzzy, you know, um, based on your experience, please, you know, give me a correction. Don't let me just keep, you know, on the wrong track. So inviting that, and that's not in a personal attack. That's us talking together and, and making sure our, mm-hmm. our content is, is accurate. So also writing down when someone corrects me um, in a spirit of helpfulness and kindness, um, le- how do I want to respond um, as far as, you know, as appreciating it and, and embracing it. And if it, and if the correction seems maybe, um, off i'm not convinced of it how do i still want to respond graciously you know what that's a good point i haven't thought about that um i'm gonna think about that for a while thank you for letting me know and i may go back and research it and yeah so that that's important to know uh the other thing in in preparation for these conversations is knowing where our knowledge 
base ends. Uh, and so we can get into a conversation, and I think what ends up turning, turning it ugly often is we come to the end of our knowledge base on a particular topic. And I've got, I've got no more data to draw from. I have no more experiences. I have no, mm. no quotes. I have no, I have no nothing. Yeah. And so now I'm just going to get mad you know, and go after this person. <laughs> um, and that's, and that happens a lot. And what we need to do is say, you know, that's, uh, I, I need to take some more time before I continue to engage. Uh, I'm interested in your, in your, uh, perspective. What books, you know, do you, could you recommend? What podcasts can I listen to? And then we'll let's, maybe let's meet in a couple of weeks and we can keep talking. So you really have to invest the time in learning, you know, identifying those areas where I know whatever it is might be an intimidating topic, but I've got to start, you know, somewhere. So I need to devote maybe a half an hour a day, an hour a day to to reading up on this and knowing what this topic is. I mean, the big one now that's flying around everywhere is critical race theory. And yep. nine times out of 10, the person has, you know, has no idea what it really is, where it came from, who the the authors were that helped develop it. They just go based on these sort of media clips and shoot them out there. Uh, I mean, our governor, you know, just tweeted, you know, that it's it's anti-American and didn't define it, didn't say what what he meant by that. Um, it just it just fuels more more anger and confusion. So um, so if I'm in a situation where I keep hearing a term like critical race theory fl- uh, flying around, I don't know what it is. I've just heard it mentioned. That's my cue to say, you know, I maybe need to start with Wikipedia, open that up, um, see who the key thinkers are, maybe read some of their articles and works. And so when I do get into a conversation, I actually know a little bit of what I'm talking about. Um, but that's time. Yeah. And again, in that media ecology that wants speed and reaction, I don't have time to go read journal articles and books. You know, I just need to go, I need to go fight on the thread. You know, that's where I need, and that's, we, we have to resist that. Yeah, not every thread needs you. <laughs> uh, that's one. Of, that's one of the things that I had to learn for myself. I, I would jump into these conversations all the time, and I think what really transformed them for me was under was was when I stopped trying necessarily to convince the other person, but to try and have a, a real conversation where I affirmed value. I started to look for things I could agree with instead of doing the opposite. So one of the common fallacies, I forget exactly what it's called, but it's where you you find one wrong, you know, line or one wrong sentence and you use that to discredit their entire point. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've started to try and do the not necessarily not necessarily the opposite, but I've started looking for things that I can affirm and then and include in my response to say, "Hey, actually I really agree with you when you said this, mm-hmm. and I think that's an excellent point or I hadn't considered before and and, you know, thank you for teaching me that. Here's what I think about the rest as well. Yeah. And that has really helped me. And then the second part of that was also, well, let me ask you this before I jump into the second part of this. Do you think that it's possible to even have healthy or good conversations on on social media outside of DMs or inbox, you know, in in bigger comment sections or in, you know, Twitter threads? Do you think that those are healthy or there's yeah. a way to do them in a healthy yeah, um, just actually a couple of weeks ago, and you may have seen this. Uh, I had posted because it, it was uh, Pride Month, and I said, "Hey, who are the um, thinkers, speakers, authors in the LGBTQ community on Twitter who I should mm. be following?" Because I want to learn and understand more. Yes, I do remember yeah. that. Yep, and it launched this thread. And what was really cool about it is not just finding you know new people to follow and getting followed back, which I, I didn't expect, uh, but people connecting, you know, in that thread saying, "Hey, oh, I didn't know about this, and thank you so much for you know." referring me and we should connect and let's do this. Um, I'm going to be on uh, two other podcasters as a result of that. And so all these other, you know, people are, are like jumping on uh, and getting involved with, with each other's work. So it was a really positive, you know, thread. And of course there were some DM conversations to, you know, just the mechanics of having a, an in-depth conversation on Twitter are, are frustrating. And so sometimes like, Hey, I'll DM you just cause it's, it's easier. Um, but as far as the actual um, tone of the content on the thread, it was very, very positive. Uh, I've seen awesome. lots of positive. I, I had COVID, you know, um, over winter break, and it took me a little bit longer to recover from it. And you know, I posted a couple updates on uh, Instagram or or Facebook, and mm-hmm. tons of people, um, positive conversations and encouragement. So I know it can happen. I just think because of the nature of social media, it it doesn't lend itself to us stopping and saying, "Before I jump in here, have I really thought about?" what I'm saying and what I hope to get out of this. And even asking like, what, what do I hope to accomplish by posting this? What, what is the goal here mm. just to make people angry? And not that there isn't a space. Sometimes you need to generate some anger. Uh, but often 
we think we're being helpful when we jump in here when in fact we're, we're just making it worse. <laughs> and so really pausing to say, is this, am I contributing to the pool of meaning or am I clouding the pool of meaning? Mm. That's, that's major. And I, I love that you mentioned goals there at the end, because what I was going to say before I asked this was that the, the big transformative thing for me, and that has helped me better filter out what conversations I jump into and what threads I don't, uh, is that I stopped, especially when it comes down to a debate or an exchange of you know opposing ideas, I stopped trying to argue to change or win the other person over. But instead, I'm doing. I'm usually jumping into something because there's a neutral third party, which is just someone who reads but doesn't engage on the thread itself. Because mm-hmm. far more people will see it, like it, maybe not even like it, or leave a comment or response. Right? And I'm I'm arguing for them. And I remember the first time I did this was when when I learned this was in college, and someone posted this huge thing about music and how listening to uh, secular music and even contemporary worship music was, it was, it was someone whose personal faith journey led them to that conclusion of this isn't okay for me. And they were making the mistake of projecting that reality for everyone else. This isn't good for me, or this elicits feelings in me that are okay, that are not okay. So it must not be okay for everyone else. And I, most of my friends at that time were worship leaders. <laughs> so you can imagine for someone to be jumping in and attacking the very thing that they love doing that was really hard for them. And so I jumped in and, and was, res- and responded to his post. And we, that was, that was a, that was one big conversation. Mm-hmm. And I had several people messaging me at the end of that saying like, you know, thank you. He really had me doubting even my own, you know, my own purpose and something that's drawn me really, you know, a lot closer to God. And you brought balance back into that and, and helped, and you affirmed value for me. And that was where I really learned the importance of understanding that when we're online, there's more than just me and the other person. There's always more people engaging with it. Yeah, for sure. Absolutely. So I like to ask this question of all my guests. I do it in the outline and I always give the context for it when I do my interviews. But uh, it's something that I like asking because every interview and on every podcast or every show often goes exactly the same for a lot of people. And I like to I want to make sure that when I invite a guest on that I ask them what they want to be asked as well. And so I always, I always leave it in the outline of what is a question you wish someone would ask you and the two that you chose. And I love that you chose two. Uh, we'll start with the first one, but Seth, what are you currently working on? Yeah. So I am currently, uh, in the final stages. It was supposed to come out, I think this next month, but it's got pushed back to September because that's just what happens. Uh, my dissertation is being published by Paul Grave McMillan in London, which is a major academic publisher. Awesome. And, and that is coming out in September. And I'm really excited about it. It, it is the first major uh, non-denominational um, academic publisher I've worked with. And it's been a process with, with COVID. The back and forth um, has been uh, delayed for a variety of reasons, mm. uh, but I'm excited for it to come out because it it really um, when that when it when it's published, it sort of gives you a little bit of street cred. You know, you work on this thing for you know mm-hmm. four or five years in your doctorate. And you're like, is this really a thing? I mean, I know I got my degree, but the, but then to have it out there and sort of validated um, by a publisher is a good feeling. And then it really opens. Uh, the door for me to talk a lot about some of my doctoral research, which relates to trauma. Um, I developed uh, what's uh, called uh, spectral rhetoric, and it's the idea yeah. of exploring felt absence. And so um, this isn't a rhetorical example, but just to, uh, to illustrate what felt absence would be is if you went through a devastating loss, then you all gathered around the, the family table uh, for a meal and there's a chair empty. There's nothing in there, but you feel it. And so... Mm-hmm. Um, when we look at film, when we look at uh, uh, texts, whether it's fiction, nonfiction, cinema, there are felt absences that, uh, quote-unquote, haunt um, the meaning and message uh, of what we're watching. And there are ways to use um, this framework that I've developed to see what is haunting certain texts, what traumas are lurking um, uh, in between the lines of certain things. So it, it's a really fun topic. Um, it's a little bit heavy. It's going to be, and again, it's not going to be, I have no delusions that it's going to be some bestseller. It's an academic textbook and it'll probably be expensive, but, but it allows me to then build off some works um, that are more for a uh, general public who might be interested in this. Awesome. Yeah. It, and I know that I, 
admittedly don't know a ton about dissertations, so I don't want, like, I know what they are, obviously. That's fine. What I mean is I don't know a lot about when they're published, accessing them, or how publicly they get published versus being used specifically for academic, you know, academic purposes. So, you know, is this something that people will be able to access on demand? Is this something that's staying remotely private? Yeah, I just don't know how that works. Yeah, yeah. So when you publish a dissertation, it goes into a database called ProQuest. And that's something that you know, every college university has access to, and it's all the dissertations that and master's thesis that you can access. Um, when it gets published, you have to do a little bit of rewriting. It's a little bit of a format change and things because dissertations have their uh, specific ways of formatting. Um, but what most of us try to do is when we're done, we like to be able to either publish it uh, as a series of articles in peer-reviewed journals or get it published as a book. And so Paul Grave McMillan is publishing it as a book. And so it'll be on Amazon. It'll be on their website. It'll be wherever they sell books, uh, academic books. Um, so it's not going to be, uh, it's not for general audiences, although it, it's written as best as I can for people in, in fields outside of communication and rhetoric um, to be able to access it. Mm. Cool. Awesome. Okay. So that I learned something. I had no idea any of that was true. So what you're saying is I won't find it next to all those young adult romance books at Barnes and Noble or Walmart. No, although, but you could use the book uh, and what's in the book to analyze those books. And and Oh, well, that's uh, good to know. I'm going to cover some some interesting meetings there. Sure. (laughs) Brian, why are you reading that weird romance novel? I'm just trying to analyze it. Research, you know, I'm just trying to. Yeah. Yeah. Just trying to, you know, practice my analytic skills and really grow those. Um. Love it. So, okay. So you and I come from a, you know, relatively speaking, smaller Christian denomination, uh, yep. which is Seventh-day Adventism. So we have about 21 million members worldwide, mm-hmm. though with how membership is tracked, it's probably, my assumption is it's probably about 2 million less, depending on what part of the world you're talking about. And uh, that's my margin of error there. But we have about 21 million members worldwide, and we have one of the largest education systems and one of the largest you know, healthcare systems in the world, uh, for, as far as private is concerned, I think we're only behind Catholics in education, yeah. I believe. Uh, and so the, uh, w- but one thing is one thing that's been true of our denomination is, is it has largely been pretty insular, which has led to a lot of misunderstandings about it. And one, one of the realities of that is publishing tends to be very insular as well. Mm-hmm. And, uh, publishing in general, uh, it's encouraged, but discouraged outside of the denomination for a lot of reasons by several people. It, and, and that, I think the tides are shifting there, but I'm curious to know, and this is a question that you yourself have, have listed here. This is the second question, but what trends do you see in Adventist publishing and you know, what, what future do you see for it? Yeah. So, uh, when I started uh, with my first article, that would have been back, you know, early 2000s, mid, you know, 2000s. And what I saw was a lot more aggressive recruiting of um, younger talent. You know, I know publishers, um, and I'm not going to mention names because I'm very, very grateful um, to these publishing houses for, you know, not all of them are in existence anymore, um, for helping launch my career. But there there was this aggressive cultivating of new voices and, and encouraging them to write books and articles. And that has sort of tapered off where it's it's become a little bit more uh, institutional, you know. Uh, people uh, just not. Um, I mean, if you're in the system, you can get some freelance work, and you you can kind of network, you know, a little bit and get stuff. But it doesn't seem as aggressive towards really cultivating new content uh, so much as going with existing existing content or even repackaging it year uh, mm. after year. Uh, the other thing I'm seeing for, um, and I'm including myself, um, uh, younger <laughs> authors and creators is we are starting to publish outside of the denomination. Um, Heather Thompson Day, you know, uh, has a new book mm-hmm. coming out, um, which I'm excited to read. Um, Kevin Wilson, you know, uh, just got a book deal. I think it, I don't want to say the publisher, I'm, I'm blanking on it. I think it's Penguin, but a major... Uh, I think it's Penguin. Penguin yeah. sounds right, but I could be, yeah, we could both be wrong. Yeah, major publishing deal. Um, John Peckham, who teaches at our seminaries with Baker Academic. I'm having my new book come out with Paul Grave McMillan. And so there's this trend of a lot of your younger authors who are now saying, you know, for the the lack of promotion, the lack of, uh, for lack of a better term, author um, support or even compensation, why am I investing all this time um, and, and effort when, when the work doesn't seem to be appreciated? And it's not even just, you know, what, what authors are compensated. It's, 
it's distribution, it's marketing. Um, I had a book that was translated into another language, a major market, and uh, I scoured all their social media. They didn't promote it once. You know, and I'm like, how? Mm. Uh, even looking at some of the the publish, publisher uh, social media pages that we have, they're full of inspirational quotes, but not any of their products, which is really strange to me. So what I'm seeing is a shift in both um, online content creation. You know, I mentioned Kevin Wilson. You know, he's doing his, um, uh, you know, the the uh, cross cultural Christian cross culture Christian yeah, yeah. his, his uh, chai um, episodes on on TikTok, which is amazing. Go check it out. Uh, you're, you're seeing a lot more of that, and um, and I'm really grateful. The the publisher of uh, my new book, Advent Source, is actually one of the very few I think who really work with the author. They they promote as best they can. Um, they really make you feel appreciated. So shout out to to Advent Source um, on that one. But that's mm. something I, I'm noticing, and I think Adventist publishers need to pay really close attention to that. A lot of their uh, existing talent or up and coming talent is looking outside because they're feeling like um, I'm, I'm not sure why I would put the effort in, not just because the compensation, but even just the promotion, letting, mm. letting people know it's there doesn't seem to be there. So it doesn't seem worth the effort. And that's, that's going to come, that's going to bite us if we don't, if we don't fix that. Yeah. I couldn't agree more with, with that assessment. And by the way, I will link to both Heather Thompson day and Kevin Wilson, the cross culture Christian, his, his stuff on, on chai is, is amazing. And the way he he uses that to speak to grander issues that, that we face. His content, the one consistent comment I always see on his stuff is, uh, is this is a breath of fresh air. Mm-hmm. And with Heather Thompson Day, she res- it's almost like, and this is not a shot at any other professors, Seth, I'm sure you're great one-on-one with your students, but she, it's almost like she restores the humanity to being a professor. And she's like a lot of the stories she shares and a lot of the interactions she has with her students are, I feel like the reason so many people connect with it is because it's exactly what they wish their professors would have done for them. Right. Um, or reminds them of the great professors that did do things like that for them. And so, right. yeah, we'll link to both of them because they both put out some amazing content if you are uh, looking for someone new to follow. The, um, but I, I do agree with you. And I think one of the... When you think of like the the industrial revolution, for example, I, I think that we are in a kind of social media revolution. I think that social media has completely changed the game for restoring power to the individual and giving platform and voice to the individual where individuals now have a grander say. Anyone has the ability to go viral, whether they kind of like it or not. And more people, I think, have better better understanding of how to do it. But for the most part, anyone could at any moment just go viral. That was what happened with one of our absurdity episodes. Out of nowhere, we went from where I just started posting it on YouTube and, you know, 60, 70 views down to over 34,000 just out of nowhere. Mm -hmm. And it just, it can happen to anyone. And that means that there's a lot less of a need to rely on the traditional institutions that value control out of preservation. Yeah. you know, it, there's there's less of a need to rely on them to do and produce. And so there's, with equipment becoming cheaper, laptops in the hands of everyone, iPads, cell phones, you can type, you can write a book on your phone. Yep. You know, you can, Charlie Puth, his whole, his, his, I think it's his album is called Voice Notes, I think is what it's called. I don't, I don't remember what it's called, but basically it's the reason he named it that was essentially because he recorded the whole thing on voice memos. He would, he would, or from voice memos that he would, he would record just so he doesn't lose a melody or when he has an idea and he would compile those into, into songs later. And he would obviously reproduce them and re-record those elements, but it was all kind of the foundation of it was built through the voice memos app on his iPhone. And that is that power exists for everyone. Now you hop on your phone on anchor and start a podcast in five minutes. So I very much agree with that. I think the institution needs to figure out a way and may mean giving up some form of of control out of out of self-preservation in order to do that. Um so I I wanna this has been an intensely practical conversation. And I I want to ask, I'm gonna ask you two final questions. And the first one is if I'm someone who wants to have better conversations, just a regular person listening to this show, and I want to position myself to have better conversations and learn how to do it. What are those first initial steps that I take after hearing this episode and being inspired to change and, and analyze the way that I have conversations? You know, what what do I do? 
Uh, go buy my book. That's the first thing you have to do. <laughs> <laughs> Link in the show notes. Yeah, that's right. It was actually, it's funny. I remember having a seminary class um, from a professor, and he told us, like, you know, if you want revival, go buy my book. And we were all so like offended by that brazen, you know, promotion, and ended up actually being a pretty good book. But so I say that half serious and 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 um, and, and and not. But uh, I, I think again, going back and realizing. Know, where where is it that I need to know more about these issues and and really making peace with the fact that this is slow work. Um, you're not going to do a crash course in intercultural interpersonal communication and know everything in two hours. You know, mm. it's really going to be an ongoing learning process. And also realizing that anything with communication, just like culture or language, is dynamic. It changes. And I hear this all the time. Oh, I wish language the, the the word could just mean what it means, and it's like well, that that's never been part of human experience. So you you, you know it might be you, it would be wonderful if everyone had the same definition and, and language and culture never shifted, but it does. That welcome to planet Earth. So you're gonna have to make mm. the fact that this is an ongoing process of, of education, and it and it takes some um, time. I also think uh, identifying uh, good healthy people who have different perspectives than you. And, you know, take them out to lunch, take them out to coffee and just say, hey, I, would, would it be okay if I ask some questions and, and get some, you know, book recommendations, uh, podcast recommendations, help me understand so I can have better conversations. And, and as we mentioned earlier, know what your triggers are, know, what, know where those flashpoints are, have, and know how you'll respond when those things come up versus just winging it in the moment. When I was a pastor and would do premarital counseling, one of the big things we teach people is here's how we, here's how we work through conflict, which will show up. We don't wait till conflict happens because when you're in the middle of it and, and the emotions are high, nobody is paying attention to anybody. You know, you're just screaming. Mm-hmm. So we're going to learn the tools now. We're going to commit them to memory. So when you recognize what's happening, you are prepared to go in there and have a better conversation. Yeah, I love it. I absolutely love it. The, you know, one thing I tell a lot of, a lot of college students, a lot of them talk about and ask about studying abroad. And a lot of them will come from more traditionally conservative uh, households. And I don't just mean that within the context of our denomination, just in general. Right. And what I, what I notice with a lot of students that go uh, to, sp- to certain countries is they discover after growing up in a very sheltered household that the drinking age is now 18, not 21. And their parents aren't, <laughs> their parents are on the other side of the world. Yeah. And if they haven't had set boundaries in place prior to going, they're a lot more likely to do what everyone else around them is doing and to engage in things that they may not have even wanted to do before they left right. because they never even thought that they would end up in those places. And so yeah. to be able to identify those ahead of time is massive mm-hmm. for keeping any boundaries for yourself and whatever. Yeah, absolutely. So I love it. And I did have this idea um, while you, when you mentioned go buy the book. And so I'm just going to announce this right now, which is I am going to do a book giveaway. So uh, oh. to one, one or two lucky listeners, well, let's say two, I'm going to buy two books. So uh, if you are interested in receiving a free copy of Seeking uh, and Understanding, How to Have Difficult Conversations Without Destroying Your Relationships, then go ahead, head over. If you're listening to this on audio, head over to my YouTube channel. There's a link in the show notes for it as well. Subscribe to the channel and leave a comment with one key thing that you either learned in this episode or something that like meant something to you in this episode that you that you resonated with. And I'll be choosing one of, uh, or I'll be choosing two of those commenters at random to receive the book. Seth isn't sponsoring it. It is something I'm just doing out of my own pocket. So uh, if that's something you're interested in, go subscribe and leave a comment letting us know what you resonated with and learned from this episode. Um, and Seth, I, I want to ask you this. What, what is your hope for future conversations? How do you hope, you know, what, what's the reality or paint a picture for us of, of what the world starts to look like when people are taking some of the principles you teach about into consideration? I think slower, more thoughtful interactions where people are really taking the time to understand where the other person is coming from, how they're defining certain things, what their experience is, and then sharing their experience you know, in, in a gracious way. And then people coming together uh, with an understanding and hopefully finding some solutions and better structures and better ways of doing life together that work for everybody. Awesome. I love it. And I advocate for the exact same thing. I really feel like this is a, a match made in heaven for us, just just for the sake of there's so many things that you talk about in the book. And there's so many things that you've mentioned on this episode that that I feel like I've, I've really been uh, pushing for a long time. And you've either articulated them in a way that I didn't know how to or never considered before. And you you brought out elements that that I am now going to adopt and adapt in my own 
my own articulation of these ideas. So I, you know, I really appreciate you coming on your expertise and your, your willingness to write this book and, and help people that need, that want and need to have better conversations. And so, uh, yeah, thank you so much. I do want to give you just an opportunity. Do you have any final thoughts, anything you want to encourage people with before we, before I sign us off? Uh, just, yeah, thank you to you and thank you to everyone who's listening. I uh, really appreciate it. And to continue the conversation, you can find me uh, on Twitter at, at Seth J. Pierce or on Instagram at, at Professor Pierce. And I hope to hear from you. Perfect. So all of the links will be in the show notes, including to those that we've referenced on uh, this episode. You've been listening to Seth Pierce, a pastor and professor uh, at Union College and in Lincoln, Nebraska, and author of the book, Seeking and Understanding, How to Have Difficult Conversations Without Destroying Your Relationships. So if you want to pick that up, link in the show notes. And if you want to enter the giveaway, uh, I basically a week from the published date on YouTube, that will be your, uh, that will be the cutoff for entry into the giveaway. So two, two lucky winners, just subscribe to the channel and leave a comment letting us know what you resonated with. And with that, thank you everyone for listening and we'll see you next week.